Am I really waiting for Jesus or am I waiting for what he does for me? When, when he comes, do, do I want him to come to give me peace and comfort and security and, you know, those things? And, and, and I had to be honest with myself. That's, when I think of Jesus coming to be with us, that's what I think of. I want peace. I want comfort. I want stability. I, I want a plan for the future. I don't like to live uh, in, in that way in this world. And, and so with that kind of in the background, I, I just am so thankful uh, for this series to cause us to reflect on that question. What really are we waiting for? Uh, the tension of holy discontent through our lives. Uh, wanting Jesus, but also wanting what Jesus gives us and living with that truth and that reality. I don't know about you, I, I assume that as we've gone through this, I hope and pray that you've struggled with this. I hope this has been a really big struggle in your life, and, and, and you've grappled with the flesh, and, and you've also grappled with the desire that Jesus would be more real to you, that he would be more a part of your life, and, and that you would long not just for his peace, his comfort, and just the, the, the assurance of the future we have in him, but you would long for him. And so, so today we're going to take a look at probably one of the most uh, grand uh, descriptions of Jesus in, in the scriptures. And uh, this is going to be the longest sermon I've ever preached. Absolutely, because we're going to go from before creation until the return of Christ. So from a time perspective, it's going to be as long as you can look in the Bible, assuming I have time to finish it. So anyway, uh, as the text was read earlier, let's begin with the first five verses as we just ponder and think and rejoice in who Jesus is. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow. Let, let, let me pray at this point as we just spend some time trying to absorb the truths of these words. God, Lord, I, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, I've read this passage many times. I've preached on it several times, God, but I'm just overwhelmed by the enormity of the truth that you have revealed to us. God, use me today. I, I, I want you to exalt and glorify Jesus through every word I speak. Uh, guard my heart, my lips, my mind, that nothing would offend you or him, and that these, uh, these dear believers, these brothers and sisters, would rejoice in Jesus, would want to draw near to Jesus, uh, would know that uh, this waiting will bear great, marvelous, glorious, eternal fruit. So we pray this in his eternal and glorious name. Amen. Uh, the first couple of verses talk about three things about Jesus. The first is that he preexisted. That uh, The words here do not leave us uh, any room to believe that Jesus became a being. He always existed. We call that the preexistence of Christ. In the beginning doesn't mean there was a beginning to Jesus. It just means uh, that in the beginning of creation, Jesus was there. He was there with God, so he was preexistent. He was also co-eternal. He coexisted with God. He was with God in the sense that they were there together. And the idea here is that they were together with each other, but they also acted together. 
the plan, the purpose, the, the unfolding of all God's will and purpose through creation was manifest through Jesus and through his work. And we see that. And it then says that the word was God. Uh, the idea here, and it's uh, used throughout scripture, it's the word I am. And, and it is the very definition of Jesus. He is God. He couldn't be with God for eternity if he wasn't God. He is distinct from God. He is glorious and divine in all the majesty of deity. So, so the being, Jesus, that we're talking about, it's not, not just a baby in a manger, though he came that way. He is the eternal, preexistent, coexistent God of the universe. So bear that in mind as we begin this series. We're going to take kind of a 30,000-foot uh, overview of these things because they're such powerful and amazing truths. Jesus is the very essence of God. He is uh, displaying for us the very true, full character of God. All of these things are so immense and enormous. I, I love what uh, Hebrews 1.3 says. He is the radiance. J just let these words soak into your soul. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus in all of his glory. He not only is preexistent and, and coexistent with God, the creator, it says specifically in more detail that he created all things. And the idea here is everything. Everything that exists was created by him. You were created by him. You're the result of his creative act and power. Everything, this table, this stage, uh, the thing I'm speaking through, sound, it was all created by him and for him. And, and the beauty of this passage is it says here that all things were made through him. The idea of made doesn't give us the picture. He took a set of building blocks and he made it. He spoke it by his divine omnipotent power into existence. The best that I can wrap my head around this truth is that when Jesus created and spoke into existence everything that exists in this universe, five to 100 billion light years large, it happened instantly. His omnipotent power coalesced to create matter, all of matter, all of matter working in harmony and perfect beauty. Uh, try to wrap your head around that. He spoke and it was made. He made, and it says it in two ways. He created, and then it goes on to say, and everything that is, nothing exists that wasn't made by him. So it says it in two ways. So there isn't one thing that Jesus didn't make. And then it goes on to tell us that he's the life in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness was not overcome by it. <clears throat> the next several verses in this passage will develop and, and explain more and more what light is. But what John does as he writes these words is to equate life with light. The life of Jesus that came into the world brought the light of God into the world with him. He, he made, he illuminated, he opened the eyes and hearts and minds of men to the reality of God. We could never be with God. We could never know God were it not for the light that came through the life of Jesus. 
So <laughs> fall down on your knees tonight and thank God that he's light and that he's opened up for all of us the ability to see uh, and to know uh, the truth about ourselves, the truth about God, the truth about this dark, sin-sick world. All of that has been made known through him for us because of his light. If we have his light, we have his light. We read these words in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. Profound words really speak of this holy discontent. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the workings of his great might. Wow. That's this Jesus. We're here to worship today, to know. Uh, we're, we're waiting to know more fully, more completely uh, as we move forward in this life. And, and again, uh, everything we have, everything we are is a result of his, his creative power, his imparting his life and light into our lives. This is magnified in the verses that come next in John uh, 6 through 8 and then down to 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There's a great distinction made between Jesus, who's God, and John, who was a man. Specifically, he was a man. Specifically, he was sent, it tells us, by God. If you go back to Luke's gospel, you'll understand that his father was a priest, and, and uh, when he was given word, and was able, they were able to conceive both, again, older people uh, who were childless. He couldn't speak until John was born. But John came into the world on a specific mission as a witness of the living God to the light, to introduce to the world, to lead people to believe in Jesus. That was his mission. And we don't have time to get into great depth and detail about John, but know that he was appointed by God to come with the divine power and authority and the message of God to proclaim to the world the truth of Jesus, that he's light, that he's come into our world. And he came to bear that witness. And this is John the Baptist we're speaking of, not John the author who wrote this gospel. So keep that in mind as we go through. Like John, I, I love this. and I love the fact that every passage in the Bible talks about bearing witness to Christ. He is our model. We're called as followers of Jesus to go tell. If all of this, and I believe this is the greatest, most profound, most important, most significant, most awesome message this world has ever, ever received. These 18 verses, go tell somebody today, tomorrow, next week. This is the greatest message or news any human being could ever be or, or receive or hear or come to understand. That's why John came to proclaim the light and life of Christ. The text goes on in 9 through 13. The true light, speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Th these verses help unfold to us the power of light 
and life that came through Christ. He was the true light who came, it says. He came to give that light to us through the life we have in Christ. So as we come to know Jesus, as we worship together Jesus, we are privileged to see and understand that light. What, what, what does light really do? Think about it for a moment. When you flip the light on in the morning, you can see your surrounding. The light gives us understanding of the world in which we live. It penetrates this world. If we want to look close at something, we get a powerful light and we shine it so we can know it better. It, it enlarges our understanding of things when it comes into the light. The light guides us, it protects us, it keeps us from falling into uh, dangerous places. It shows us the difference between right and wrong. That's what the light does. That's what the life of Christ, the gospel, does for us. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is the tension of holy discontent is, is living in the reality of the light and allowing the light to penetrate our minds through the work of the Spirit so that we might understand these things. When Jesus came, the light came in a multitude of ways. First is natural revelation. He came as one to bear witness to God throughout the whole world and through creation. We read these words in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, speaking of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Let me say this as profoundly as I can. There is not one person on this planet that is not subject to the testimony of divine revelation through creation, the order, the way creation works. And we, they, they all will be held accountable to recognize and understand in that truth there is a living God. It is the first and most primary witness of God in the world. But then Jesus came specially to portray and, and to unfold the light of God through the gospel. I love, Jake, you, you talk about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. There's no greater thing we can do. Remind ourselves of, of what Jesus has done and who we are in him and, and what life we can live for him in this world. And that comes as well through the light and power of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit's come to, to guide us to teach us the word. He is our teacher. He illuminates our understanding of God's word. When you see things in scriptures and, and you have one of those aha moments, it is the spirit of God teaching you the deep truths of the word of God. It is his work in you. It's the light of Christ manifesting itself in you. That is the power of the light that's come. Jesus was rejected. We know this. The text says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world uh, also, it says, he, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You, you know, I've, the older I get, the more I look at our world, and, and I see darkness and light. I see people, I, I have a worldview, and, and I hear things, and I hear people speak, and I see things in the news, and I wonder, what planet do they live on? Because their view of life and of the world and things they value is so totally opposite of mine. 
I, I, I can't explain it other than they live in darkness and we're privileged to live in light. I, I can't explain it beyond that. That's what the light has done. And Jesus came and offered that light to the world. But some rejected it. Some live without it. Some have chosen to embrace the sin and darkness of the world and to hate God, to blaspheme God, to curse God, to live without God. You know, Jesus came as the way, but they would not walk with him. He came as the truth, but they would not believe him. He came as the life, but they put him to death. That's the total rejection of unbelief. But praise God, he's opened our hearts and minds to these things. And uh, this is addressed in verse 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave, whom he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what a... What an incredible verse. It speaks of, of the, the great transaction that is incurred in, I hope, every life in this worship center today. I don't know that every one of you know Christ, but if you know Christ, you've been adopted as his sons. Listen to these words again. Because of your faith, your belief in him, he's given you the right, the right to become a child of God. The, right, the idea behind this word is that you have the authority and the privilege and the power as a son of the living God. Are we living that way? Do, do we live with that kind of a belief and conviction that we are his sons and daughters? That we have his authority and his power in us because we are his sons. We, we seldom appreciate and understand the significance of that. Our middle daughter and son-in-law, uh, 20 years ago, adopted a son from Haiti. His name is Austin. He was six months old when they brought him home, and he weighed six pounds. So that gives you an idea of what comes out of Haiti in the form of, a, of an infant. The thing I will never forget is when we met them, at the airport and we waited and waited and waited as the plane people departed from the plane and finally when everyone else was off the captain came out and then our son-in-law and daughter brought little Austin out and the pilot looked at him and he said you have just won the lottery because in Haiti there's nothing and here there is everything but let me tell you Austin has come to know Christ, and he has more than this world could ever give him in his relationship that's come to him through his family, fully adopted, with all the rights and privileges and power as a son, not just of them, but of the living God. Remember that. That's who we are. That's the life we live. It's so awesome. Romans 8, 15, and 16 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We're not to live that way. We're not to, to be overcome by the fear of living in this world. 
He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And I, I don't know about you, but, but the challenge we face with this holy discontent thing, and this, this to me is the danger of it. When we just focus more on the gift rather than the giver, what happens is uh, we get easily discontented with what we have. I don't have peace. I don't have enough money. I don't have health. I don't have this. I don't have that. And when we become discontent with the gifts, it often leads to dissatisfaction, despair with the giver. And that's the danger. That's the, the black hole of holy discontent. That we, we so focus on the longing for the gifts that we belittle we ignore, we lose sight of the giver. And we're waiting not for him. We're waiting for a better job, a better house, better health, better opportunity, better kids, better whatever. And that's the challenge of living in this world in this time. As we move on in this passage to wrap up verses 1 through 18, uh, listen as I read, and the word, <laughs> the word became flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from the fullness we have received, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side and who has made him known. This is the incredible truth that we celebrate, we focus on, we dwell on at Christmas, that the Word became flesh, that Jesus took on humanity and he chose to enter this world not as a reigning king, but as a humble infant. To identify with us, to enter into our struggles, to understand more of our holy discontent. He came to live as we live. He came in our midst. He came in the flesh. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, how, how Jesus could be fully God. He could embrace and, and, and be endowed with all of the fullness of the Godhead, of, of deity, but also be fully man. With the same temptations that we had, with the same struggles that we have. And the question was raised to me, why did he come in the flesh? I, I know he came in the flesh because he had to bear our sins and die. That's obvious. But he also came in the flesh for other reasons. Here, here's one. Uh, the flesh, our flesh is corrupted. It's, uh, we, we say of it, it is uh, debased, it's depraved. There is no good thing in my flesh. I cannot please God through my flesh. Jesus came to put the flesh to death so that by the power of the Spirit within us, we can live for God and, and not live by the flesh. And again, this is the process of holy discontent, living less and less for my flesh and living more and more for His glory. In 2 Peter 1.4, P 
Peter writes, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. <laughs> his precious and very great promises. So that through them, you, that's us, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, we're in bondage, we're in captive captivity to the, the flesh, the, the sinful world. But Jesus came to free us from that. And every time, let me, let me tell you, every time <clears throat> we have victory over a sin, every time God uses us to minister his grace and truth to someone else, it is a victory over the flesh. It is a testimony to the power of the word made flesh in us, living his life through the power of the divine nature. <clears throat> the flesh was depraved in, in, in every way. It was, it was uh, broken, ruined, not fully, but, but in a major degree. Do, do you think uh, unsaved man is honoring and glorifying God in their flesh? No. No way. Sin despairs the heart of God. Listen to these words. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, Jesus speaking. Through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're, we're in bondage to the flesh. Jesus has delivered us from that. He's freed us from the power of it. And it's all contained in the truths of the gospel. So this, this whole thing of holy discontent, we can grow from discontentment to holiness by more and more mortifying the flesh, putting it to death, more and more seeking to live for the glory of Christ. Our, our, our flesh isn't natural, uh, is natural. J uh, Paul taught us in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I get too many verses in my head, sorry that uh, the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. So Jesus came in the flesh one day when we die, when he returns, we will be glorified and go to be with him forever. That's part of what we're waiting for, but it's real, it's active, it's live now as we see his power work in us to overcome the flesh. And, and of course, he came in the flesh to bear our sin. He came to put the sin to death. He, he came to prepare us for eternity by providing for us a glorious, eternal body. All of that will come in the future. Wow. And it goes on to say in 14, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came into this world, we saw the glory of God. And notice, John is writing this, and he uses the term we. He says that we, the apostles, we who were with Jesus, saw the glory of God with our eyes. And, and, and that's literally what it, we saw him. We saw this God-man. We saw Jesus with our eyes. First John says it, with, says it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, they, they heard him speak, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
This is the testimony of the apostles to the coming of Christ. The one full of grace and truth, the one fully God came into our world amongst us as an infant and grew into the most sublime expression of God any human heart could ever understand or know. He came and lived bodily with us. John says this about John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's like John is reminding, John the Apostle is reminding us what John the Baptist testified to. Jesus was before me even though John was born before him. John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was the eternal God. John the Baptist recognized that his existence on this earth, his ability as a messenger sent from God was totally in the hands and totally because of what Jesus had done. And he exalted him and he rejoiced in him in that way. And the text goes on to say, for from him fullness we have received grace upon grace. Just drill down on those words. Grace upon grace. What does that mean to get grace upon grace? Grace is good, but grace upon grace is even better, I guess. I mean, more of anything is more chocolate's better, right? Than just a little chocolate. Yeah, if you're a chocolate lover, for me it is. But grace upon grace, what does that mean? It's just that, that God just pours out to us. If he's with us, if he's dwelling in us, if he's in us through his spirit, he's pouring out into us grace upon grace. I, I love what Spurgeon said about this, and I read this many years ago too and never forgot it. He said, grace upon grace means this. God gives you the grace to serve like giving a drink of water to a thirsty man, and then he gives you the reward of having done that. That's grace upon grace. And what I think that means is, is every time we serve him, we do it through the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but every time we have the privilege to serve someone else, there's such a blessing. That's grace. The grace of serving and the grace of the blessing of God that comes from having served. Uh, our Sunday school teachers, uh, I've heard so many times from their lips and over the years from the teachers of children, what a privilege it is. We could get Nancy Hardy up here to tell us what a joy it is to teach these kids. God gives her the grace to teach. And then he blesses her with his grace for having served. And that's evidence of, of the goodness and fullness of God in our hearts. So we know he's with us when we're experiencing that in those ways. This is grace upon grace. It's completed in him. Nothing can ever deplete that. You're not going to suck all the grace out of God or out of Jesus. Know that now. Just keep asking for grace. Keep drawing on his grace. It's not like these oil wells we have that are going to deplete themselves over a few years. His grace will never, ever be depleted. Ever. You can't ask too much. You can't dwell in it too much. It's grace upon grace, never to be diminished. Wow. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And what these words tell us is that uh, no one has ever seen the true essence, 
the invisible immutability of God. We can't see the very nature of God. No one ever has. There's been theophanies. You know, when the angels, or we think it was the Lord, came to Abraham and on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a theophany. It was an appearance of the Lord in a way that men could comprehend. What this is talking about is the true essence and nature of God. No one's ever seen it. We read these words in 1 Timothy 6.16, Who alone has immortality? Who dwells in unapproachable light? Whom no one has ever seen or can see in him be honor and eternal dominion. Now that's true of God. But what it goes on to say in this passage is Christ has made him known to us. All that we can know of God as human beings, all that our minds can comprehend, all that we can possibly understand, all the fullness that could ever come to us is in Christ. Jesus has it all. It's all there. Everything we need. Grace upon grace and all the fullness of God. And, and yeah, it's, it's with us. Rejoice that we can know the Father fully. There, there's no limitation in our ability to know our Father because Jesus has made him known to us. I want to turn now to a few passages in the book of Revelation. And again, we don't have a lot of time with these. I told you it would be at 30,000 feet. But there are four key passages, if we have time to get through them all, that portray Christ in the future to us, what he will be like then. The first one is in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Just listen, relax. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, and here we begin the description of Christ, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And, in his, and, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. <laughs> what a picture. You know, and again, I'm going to say up front, these are the best words that John could use to describe what he saw. And these are words full of meaning. Uh, he saw Jesus glorified. Jesus ruling over the churches. He was dressed as a priest. We often say of Jesus, he's prophet, priest, and king. Here we see at least part of Jesus as the priest. He had, uh, it says in the passage, uh, white hair white like snow. This is drawn perhaps from Daniel and, and just the ancient of days. And it's a, it's a, a picture, it's a symbol of eternity. He's the eternal God. His eyes were blazing with fire, and the judgment against sin and unbelief and the rejection of God. His feet symbolized the offering of, of, of uh, sacrifices for sin. His face glowed like the sun. You know, we, we had a uh, um, eclipse here last summer and people had to really guard their eyes to be able to look on the sun let me tell you what John saw was 
infinitely more glorious than that. That's what he saw. You know, in this John, when he saw this, he fell down out of just fear, worship. Jesus said to him, don't fear. But remember, this is the John who did what? On the night Jesus was betrayed. He put his head in Jesus' bosom. He rested with his Lord. And now here he's falling down before Jesus. And I just want us to grasp the significance of what we see here. Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. He's no longer a savior with thorns on his head. He is the Lord of glory. And there's a day that we will be with him as Lord of glory. And I don't know exactly everything we'll see. We can piece together some of the things here, but it's just an incredible picture. Move on with me to chapter... uh, uh, My notes are messed up. Hang on. Oh, chapter 5. 5 through 7. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and the seven scrolls, seals. And between the throne, here again now is the picture of Jesus and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated at the throne. Here's a picture of both the lamb and the lion. The lamb was Jesus on this earth pouring out his life for the sins of men. The lion is the one who will reign forever. But we will see him. I believe in heaven. This is my personal conviction. We will see him with the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. We will see him as our savior there. We will fall down as the beings in this passage and previously in verse 4 or chapter 4 to worship the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. This is a picture of Jesus that is just enormous and awesome and overwhelming. And then in chapter 19, we read these words, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripping blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread down the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty on his robes. And on his thigh he has the name written, Lord or King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus coming in all victory. When all evil uh, will be destroyed and put out of this world. And again, I don't know all uh, that's to be learned from this, but understand he's coming as victor. He's coming as the one. This is a picture of his second coming to put to an end all the sin and evil and wickedness in our world. White horse is a symbol of his victory. The names, there's at least four names given here, one of which we don't know. And and the reason there are so many is because nothing can really describe him. He is so glorious. He is so undescribable. Name him with as many names as you can, and you still cannot contain the fullness 
and the wonder of Jesus. He's coming, though, to judge the sin and the evil and the wickedness of this world. He's, he's just fall down and worship the victory of the Lord that's coming. This is what awaits us. And maybe my favorite comes from chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. And this is after, after all the wars over, whatever. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gave its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light with the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter anyone, <coughs> excuse me, and anyone who does what is detestable or fake, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here, here's a picture of, of, of after the big city comes down. Chris mentioned this a couple weeks ago and just the, the reality of, of what that's going to be like. The glory of the, of the Father and the Son will light all of eternity. There won't be a sun or moon. No day or night. Their glory will radiate everywhere. We will see by their glory. We will worship by their glory. We will live by their glory. There will be no need for it. They, they will, there won't be any churches. They're, they're the temple. All worship will be directed toward them. And there will be peace and an end to all the wrong and sin and evil and darkness in our world. You know, as we wrap this up, and, and I, I want to do that now, just, just thinking of, about this picture of seeing Jesus from the beginning to the end. The Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. This is the Jesus we're here to rejoice in and to celebrate and to grow to know and to be with and to more and more and more come to know. You know, in the Old Testament, the glory and, and the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple. Where does he dwell today? We know in the future that he will dwell in this heavenly city. But where does he dwell today? Scripture is very clear. He dwells in you and me and every believer, and he dwells in this church. When we come together, the glory of God is in us and in one another. He is with us. And we, as we come together, as we fellowship, as we come together with each other, we're with him. Find peace in this fact that his glory is forever with us. I want to end with these words. These are from Joshua. These words have convicted me and brought hope and strength to me for many, many years. Since I preached through Joshua, and I have no idea when that was. It was many years ago. But listen, this is, this is repeated twice in, in Joshua. This is from verse 23 or chapter 23, verse 14. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. He meant he was going to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, and listen to this, it's said three times, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass second time for you. Not one of them will fail you. 
This is, the, this is the word of God, the life, the light of the world, what Jesus brought. His truth will never fail. His glory will never diminish. We can wait for him. We can be with him now. We can grow. You know, I think the process of growth is to get rid of the discontent and to grow in holiness. Holy discontents where we often live. But he wants us to shed the discontent and embrace the holiness. I, I hope somehow these words have challenged you in that. Rejoice in Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the, the glorious God who created all. All we have, everything we are, we have from him. We have the greatest message to go proclaim to the world that's ever been spoken. We have salvation. We have the fullness of God. We can know God in ways that, that, that are unbelievable if we would explore them and embrace them celebrate his glory as lord reigning he's the lamb we will see him i believe with his wounds for all eternity we'll see him as our as our lamb our savior we will see him as the king coming in victory we will see him with peace and rest as his glory lights the world let me pray father we thank you for this time God, I know we've uh, covered a lot of scripture. We've gone a long distance biblically and theologically. But Lord, all of this is true of you. All of what you sought to come and do on our world to make known to us the fullness of the Father, Jesus came. And may we grow in that knowledge and that understanding of you and, and may we just uh, celebrate Christmas as we've never celebrated it before because the word was made flesh. And he came to reveal the fullness of God the Father, the fullness of your grace, grace upon grace. Oh God, may we draw near to that. May we uh, fill our waiting with expectancy and hope and joy and prayer and fellowship and longing and service to be with you as we await your coming. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Close our service together.